0: By now, there we go. well, it is a joy for us to be with you this morning. It seems like it wasn't many hours ago that we left, and that's because it wasn't. It was rather late last night, but it was uh, good to uh, spend the evening well all day yesterday with you and and uh, meeting uh, many of you and your families and your children and uh, It was a, a distinct joy and a privilege, and it it is so also. To worship with you. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I hope you do. I hope you'll turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. That's in the Old Testament. I don't know when the last time someone preached from Deuteronomy was, but it is there and it is God's Word and uh, it's actually pretty good. Um, if you haven't been there in a while, uh, if you're reading through your Bible, you'll probably get there in a few weeks and you might slow down a little bit in Deuteronomy because it's it's really rich with what God has done in dealing uh, with his people. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, I, I just want to spend just a moment uh, introducing myself and my family, and then I want to get to the matter at hand. Uh, we, my wife and I have been married for eight and a half years, and as you saw, if you got the paper last week or you weren't here last week and you shockingly walked in this week and you picked up the paper, uh, we have six children uh, they range in age from eight to two, uh, and we went from zero children and a very happy couple who had been married for uh, just, just three years or so, three and a half years, uh, to having six children in less than three years. And uh, that's a, a very long and, and detailed story with a lot of things, but uh, suffice it to say God worked in, in our life in a way that we had not imagined. Uh, we were under the impression we weren't going to be able to have kids, and apparently that was incorrect, uh, twice at least. And so, we we now have six beautiful children, and uh, a lot of things just had to work out in God's timing for all of that to work. Many of you who were with our children yesterday talked about how well behaved and well mannered they were, and trust me, that will change. Because that is not always our experience. Uh, But if you have kids, and I see a bunch of teenagers sitting over here, and I assume many of your parents are spread out across the church, they know that you were not and continue not to be well-behaved at points. And so uh, that's what I'm looking forward to, having six teenagers at one time, five in high school at one time, all of those fun things. So, uh... Uh, but I have uh, I've been the pastor of High Show Baptist Church uh, for the last five years. Uh, they were uh, and continue to be a wonderful church for us. Um, they called me as their pastor at 23, uh, which um, if some of you think at 29 is a step of faith, let me assure you 23 was a step of faith. And, uh, uh, but things have been great at our church for five years. We have no problems there. We love the people, but... Uh, We have also been forward with them the entire time that we have been there, that we are on God's time. And uh, we have had many opportunities uh, to go other places, but God has closed every single door until today. And uh, so and we'll see how today goes. Uh, I see Jim's face back there. Uh, But it's good to be with you. That's all I'm going to say about me, and I hope for the rest of the time we're together that you are not listening to me um that's not why we're here and if this is the only opportunity i ever get to preach to you this is the sermon that i want you to hear Uh, because i want you to hear god this morning Uh, and i hope that he will remove me out of the way and that's what you hear as we go through god's word let us pray and then we'll get started here heavenly father god this morning we come to you realizing what a wonderful privilege it is to worship To worship in your name, to worship in spirit and in truth. And God, as your word is proclaimed, Lord, I hope that we understand that our purpose is to worship. God, my prayer this morning is not that I would make an impression, not that the musicians have made an impression, but God, that your spirit has spoken to us, and God, that we would listen be with us this morning. Lead, God and direct our hearts. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to ask you this morning to think in your mind about how you define the word success. What does it mean to you to be successful? If you're a business owner today, maybe and this is very optimistic, but maybe it's that, that you would do a million dollars in sales this year. Or maybe it's two million. Maybe a million would mean that the business has got to close. So two million is your definition of success. If you're in school, maybe it's to get finished. To, to get it knocked out, to, to do the work, take the tests, and finish. If you're an athlete, maybe you have goals about what success would mean in your life, in your athletic background. Maybe you want to go to college and play. Maybe you just want to make the high school team. For me, it was I wanted to get off the bench and on the field for just a moment. That would have been success. You know, in church, we kind of are leery, I think, of the word success. It, it, it almost has worldly connotations on it. So maybe, maybe it would be better if we thought about a word that's more familiar to us. What do you think, how do you define what it means to be blessed. What does it mean to be blessed by God? I hear all the time that because we are believers in Christ in in the United States, where we have the freedom to gather here this morning and worship, that that is a a blessing. We, We know that our brothers and sisters in other countries just simply don't have that luxury. So what does it mean? Think in your mind, right? What does it mean... What, what would I have to have in my life? What would have to be true and real in my life for me to tell someone else I am blessed? I think if we boil it all down, we could probably all come to the consensus that if God has called you to himself and he has saved you and you follow after Christ, that you're blessed. Everything else from that is it's just decorations, isn't it? I mean, we really don't need any more than that, to be called by God, for God to have called us his people. Maybe that's blessing enough. Think about this then also. If we are blessed, if, if God has blessed us, and let me just tell you this morning, after hearing the, the, the music, I'll tell you in that category, you are well blessed. But Why? As we go throughout the Bible, if you begin in Genesis and you work your way all the way through the Old Testament and you get in through the New, you go all the way through Revelation, you find people or person after person who God blesses. Person after person who God gives abundantly and He gives wonderful things to. But there's a theme that runs throughout the Bible. When people are blessed, something dangerous happens. I never really thought a lot about that until I was looking through this text about how dangerous it is to be blessed by God. Let's look at our text this morning. Deuteronomy, I want to read the last verse of chapter 31, and then I'll just read part of 32 because it's it's a rather lengthy passage. Verse 30 says, Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, like showers upon the earth. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock, his work is perfect. For his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your fathers and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in a howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, burying them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land. He ate the produce of the field. He suckled with the honey out of the rock, with oil out of the flinty rock. Curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs rams of bashan and goats with the very finest of the wheat and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked you grew fat stout and sleek then he forsook the god who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation i'm going to stop reading there and we'll look at some of the other verses as we go through what what happens here is moses moses is about to die He's been told by God that he is not going to enter into the promised land. It wasn't a really big deal what he did. God just told him, go and speak to this rock, and water's going to come out. And Moses got a little impatient, and so he took his staff, and he he hit the rock twice. And that was enough. That was enough where God told him, you know, you're not going to go into the promised land. You're, You're not going to see everything that I promised. And so Moses comes here at the end of the book of Deuteronomy as the people of God are on the verge of going in to the place where God has promised them for so many generations. But Moses knows the people that he leads. He he knows God's people. He knows what their tendencies are. He knows what they love to do. And what they love to do is get the blessings of God and then squander them. And so he writes this song. And it doesn't say it was sung in front of the people. Typically when we read songs in in the Old Testament, that's what happens. But it says that he stood up in front of the people and he spoke these words. And it says he spoke them to everyone. And he wants them to understand that the blessing of God can be dangerous. Because when the people of God are blessed by God, sometimes, as he said here, as hard as it is for someone like me to hear they grew fat and sleek and stout. That, that hurts because that means they were eating a lot and enjoying things. And I like to eat a lot and enjoy things. And they became complacent and they became, They stopped worrying about following after God. So look, look with me in these first verses here as we begin in verse 1 and we work our way on. What we see is that he first tells them about the God that they serve. And I think for us, that's how we begin to forget about how blessed we are from God. We forget about who God is. It's one of the powerful things about the, the last song that we had this morning. And thinking about in Christ alone, how it spells out, theme by theme and event by event in the life of Christ, what he did for us. What he did in going to the cross and dying on our behalf. And so Moses lays out for them, this is what God has done for you. First, look in verse 4. God is the rock. He is the firm foundation upon which everything you have is built. He tells them, listen, his ways are perfect, verse 4. His ways are just. He is a God of faithfulness without iniquity. Just and upright is He, God. The one who has created them, he'll say later, who has encircled them, who has given them everything that they have ever had, everything they would ever need, He is a good God. He's a God of blessing. He is a God who is just, who has never made a mistake, who has never made a wrong decision, who has never done anything to them. That was outside of his character. He has always wanted good things for them. The book of Romans tells us very clearly that those who love God, God is working all things together for our good. Even the bad. Even the difficult things. So he tells them, listen, this is who you are serving. He is the Father, verse 6, who created you, who made you, and established you. He is the one who, in verse 8, when he made everything in the world, when he put everyone in their place, he looked first at the people of God. And he says, everything else is going to revolve around them. If I put these people over here, it will be for the benefit of my people. And if I deal with these people over here in such a way, it'll be for the benefit of my people. God cares so much about his people that he designs everything else around them. He goes on later to say that when God gave himself an inheritance, what was it? His people. He could have picked any people in the world. There were many nations who were much greater than the nation of Israel. There were many people who were more numerous They might have been people who would have listened a lot better. But he says, I picked you. And so I brought you out of this desert land, in verse 10, this howling waste of the wilderness. Remember, they they were slaves. They were forced to do whatever the Egyptians wanted. They were mistreated. And remember, God sees that, and that's when he calls Moses to come in and to lead his people out. This is the God that they serve. The God who brings them in through the rest of these verses into this promised land. A land flowing with milk and honey. They had everything. Folks, that's us. If you are here this morning, and you have a relationship with Christ, if he has called you as his own, this is what he has given you. Except the book of Hebrews later would describe all of these people. In, in chapter 11, if you want to look it up, all of these people who, who, who had faith in God. And we're talking about Old Testament people who had faith, and they had faith, and they pushed on. And he says they weren't just looking for a promised land. If you've ever been to the Middle East, it's kind of, I mean, Israel's not that big an upgrade from Egypt it's all desert, it's all wasteland, and they all fight all the time. He said, but what the people had in mind, Moses, Abraham, the prophets, what they had in mind was a better land, something greater than this desert strip that sits off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. They had something better in mind. They had what God was preparing for them. This is, this is our God. This is, this is what he has done us he has brought us out of the desert wasteland of our sin he has brought us out from the slavery and bondage that we had to sin if you're here this morning and you know him he has brought you out of that and brought you into his promised land he has made you his child he has made you an heir with christ he's given you everything you need he has encircled you as verse 10 says he has, he has carried you along. What I, what I love here is he points out to them, God did this by himself. No one else helped. There was no foreign God that came along and helped you to, to do something or be something great. He, he said, God did this for you. But what's so? what breaks my heart when I read this is to see what they do with what God has given them. Sometimes when I'm preaching and I talk about the disciples and I'll, I'll talk about something that one of Jesus' disciples did and, and I'll get that look from people like, well, I would have never done that. You know, you say, Peter denied Christ three times and, and some Baptists will, well, I wouldn't have. I'd have used that sword and I'd have went up there and I'd have cut off everybody's ear." But in reality, we would have done that and worse. I mean, here are the men who followed after Jesus for, for maybe as much as three years, and they're scared in a room somewhere not knowing what they should do. I think we do that with, with God's people. We, we read through it, and we go, you know what? I would have never done that. I wouldn't have grew fat and sleek and stout and kicked. If you keep reading on, as, as we're going to continue, they, they begin to worship other gods. They begin to follow after other gods. As a matter of fact, if you look there in verse 17, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. They were blessed by God and they turned their back on him. And we as believers think, well, we wouldn't do that because, I mean, we're not going to make us a statue and put it up here where this nice plastic tree is and and all gather around and bow down before it and worship? That's absurd. None of us would do that. But the fact is that you and I, as quickly as they did, will set up other gods in our life and fall down at their feet and worship. They do not have to be gods made of gold or iron or bronze. But they're gods when we set something up and put them in front of God. And that's what they do as we go on through the text. What we see is when we get to verse 21. They've, they've spurned God. They have turned their back on Him. They're unmindful of the rock. And in verse 21, this is God talking. He says, "...they made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation." He says, they have decided that they're all going to gather together and they're going to worship these these things. The most common one they would do, and growing up in North Carolina, we always called it Baal, the god, You've, you've heard of Baal, it's not pronounced that way, I've tried to make myself do better and pronounce it right, it doesn't work. It's hard to get the Taylorsville out of, you know. My theater professor tried in college, but it was hard. It's called Ball. So I'm going to call it Ball, but I want you to know what it is. Ball was the God they would set up and worship, and he was this, this golden calf, and he was apparently supposed to do something and help them. And God says, listen, he is no God. He's not real. He's fake. He has no power. He has done nothing for you. You have never known him. You have never seen him, and yet you worship him. And friends, even as believers in Christ, we will easily fall into that trap. We will set our jobs up as gods. We will set our families up as gods. We will set our money up as gods. Friends, we can set a church up as a god and worship it. And he says, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to make them fall in love with these things that are no god. He says, I I'm going to make them jealous with those who are no people. I'll provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. They will begin to worship these false gods. And so he will send along these people. These people who are not his people. They're not his portion. They're not his inheritance. And they're going to come and they're going to... The people of God are going to look around and go, Man, we want to have it like them. We want to have what they've got. God was going to bless people that were not his... To make his people see how good he was. You know, I think sometimes we look at the world and society. I, maybe you don't. I do. I'll see things on television. I'll see celebrities. And I'll see that they are just dumb as a brick. And they make the dumbest movies and they sing the dumbest songs and they make millions of dollars. And I just ponder that. And wonder, how is that? I work my tail off to do 20-some years of school, and they make a movie that is terrible and make more money in a day of filming than I make in years of preaching. But then God will remind me. And it doesn't take him long to remind me. Because the beginning of the story on the news is they made this movie and made millions. And the next one is about them being in jail and on drugs and how destructive their relationships are. And I go, thank God that's not me. But God's people, when they turned their back on him, began to look at the people around them. And they wanted what they had even though it was nothing. It was worthless. They had been told they were God's people. They had everything they needed they were jealous over something else. See, God's anger is kindled in verse 22. He heaps disasters upon his people in verse 23. He says in verse 24, they are wasted with hunger. They are devoured by plague. They face poisonous pestilence. Even the beasts of the fields come up against them. As if everything else is bad, they can't even walk through the woods without being worried about something coming out of the woods and getting them. Most of us like to carry a gun in the woods and bring out things dead. For the people of God, they will go in the woods and they'll be brought back out. That's how bad it becomes. And if you look, all these are contrasted. If you look before, when they are following after God, they've got the goodness of the land, they've got the food, they've got everything they need, and when they're not following God... They've got nothing. Even their very lives are demanded of them. Verse 25 says that the sword comes, war comes against them, and no one's spared. It's not just the men going out into the battle, but it's the enemy coming and killing their children, killing their men with gray hair. No one's spared. The people have to face the punishment that comes from God and their disobedience. See, to me, that's pretty depressing. I don't know about for you, but to me, that's, that's pretty, hard to, it's pretty hard to hear. It's pretty hard to understand. And, and you know, as the church, we like to think about God's grace through Christ, and so we, we don't think about God punishing us for various things. We're, we're not likely to walk through the woods tonight and bears jump out and get us. If it happened, I'm very sorry, but at least you were warned ahead of time. So what are we to do? Because if we're honest, and I want to be honest with you, if we are honest, our hearts are prone to wonder. It is easy for my heart to worship something other than God. And if you say, Pastor, in my heart it's not, then there you have succumbed to the idol of lying and pride in your life. And I just proved my point. That's our heart. Because we are sinful human beings who God is working in in our lives. He is transforming our heart through Christ if we know Him, but it is not transformed completely yet. We are not there yet. So where's the hope? He doesn't leave them. He doesn't leave them in that place where they were. God does not stop with his people abandoned. He does not allow them to remain in this place forever. He's going to teach them. Look in verse 28. He begins to teach them. He says, They are a nation void of counsel. There is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. He says, They're not wise. If they were wise, they would know what's coming and they wouldn't go there. But they're not wise. And folks, you and I oftentimes are not wise. We, we don't even feel our hearts turning away. But, but what does God do? He, he doesn't leave them. After their protection is gone, after they have abandoned him. Look in verse 39. He will come to them, and he will. And I I really think this is what the text is saying. He will take what they have done and he will rub it in their face. I think God has a sense of humor and I think he puts that on his people sometimes. And I think sometimes his judgment is very ironic looking back on it. If you're going through the plague and the pestilence, it's not ironic at all. But if you're on this side of it, you look and you see, how did they not see that? But he tells them, verse 39, see now that I, even I am he. And there is no God beside me. I kill and I make a lie. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For those who are the enemy of God, that is probably one of the hardest passages to read in the scripture. It says that nobody can deliver us out of God's hand. If you are his enemy, there is no one who can come and save you. There is no God out there. There is no religion. There is no belief that can save you from the hand of God if you're his enemy, but if you're his friend. There is no God. There is no religion. There is no false idol that can come and remove you from the hand of the Savior. He holds us at every moment in his hand. And if we are his friend, he holds us tightly. He does not let us go. So when we wonder, when our hearts are prone, when we replace this plastic tree with the God of our choosing and fall down in worship, he has not let us go. He might be giving us enough rope to hang ourselves with, but he will pull us back up. He does not let us fall away. No one can take us from his hand. Why does he do this? Because again, if we're honest, what within us makes us worthy of God sending Christ to die on our behalf? What what have we done? What merit do we have? There are no number of degrees that you can put on a wall. There are no number of hours that you can come to church services. There are no number of mission projects that you can do or money that you can give the church for God to look upon you with favor. Sorry if I ruined anyone's day. So why? Why would He choose us? I want to read to you why. You see, all this comes to pass. They fall into captivity. Their nation is destroyed. They turn to the idols, and God sends their destruction. But a prophet named Ezekiel comes along later, and he writes this. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, and that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord... And yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, he tells this to Ezekiel, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. He says, I'm not doing it for you. You've turned your back on me. You've worshipped another God. You've brought all this upon yourself. He says, so I'm not going to save you for your sake. I'm not going to save you because you're something special. I'm not going to save you even because you have decided that you're not going to worship those false gods anymore. He says, I am going to save you because of my holy name. God does everything that he does to bring glory to himself. And you might say, well, that's awfully conceited. He's God. You might say, that's awfully arrogant. He's God. Who, if there is anyone who has a right to be arrogant and conceited and think highly of himself, who is it? It is God. Who's going to tell him that he shouldn't be? But you know, to me, that's a comforting thought. Because I've done nothing to deserve his grace. I've done nothing to earn it. I could not merit it. But he says... I love you, I want you to be mine, I'm going to call you to myself, I'm going to give you life through Christ, I have sent him to die in your place, you didn't deserve it, you didn't earn it, it's it's a gift, It's, it's why they call it grace, it's why God has showed us his mercy, and he tells his people here, though you don't deserve it, because I have concern for my name. Because I have concern for what people think of me. I'm going to save you. Countless times in the Old Testament, God was very close, it would seem, to destroying destroying the people. And every time, if you look, Moses will come to God and he says, You know, God, I don't know if you know this or not, of course God did, but I don't know if you realize this or not but if you destroy us everybody's going to think that you're kind of weak everybody's going to think that you're not strong everybody's going to think that you couldn't do it and God says I'm going to show them what I can do because I'm going to take a people who don't deserve it who can't win it who can't do it and I'm going to make them mine friends this morning this is what Christ has done for us if you're here if you're here If you're here and you don't know Christ, he has came and died on your behalf. He has came and given his life for you. Now, you've messed it up. You've not listened to him. You've not followed him. You've broken his commandments. You, in reality, are a terrible person, but so am I. And so is everyone else sitting here. We have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. God demanded perfection for his people, and we didn't live up to it. So if you're sitting there this morning and you think, well, it sounds like me. I've messed up. I've not got it right. I've not done what I'm supposed to. Then you're in the club. You're in the right room of people. Because that's us. God has called us out of our sin, just like the people of God in that wasteland. And He has brought us out to a place, a land flowing with milk and honey, a place of protection and goodness surrounded by His Holy Spirit. And what He tells us is, while you're there, remain in me. Don't turn to something else. Don't follow after something else. If I begin to bless you greatly, don't don't give up. Don't give up and decide we're going we're gonna to give our credit to someone else. We're going to give the glory to something else. We're going to follow after something else. He says, it was me. I brought you here. I will keep you here. And my call is to follow. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you've never met him, you've never, you've never turned your life to him. You never turn from your sin. Turn to God. Confess to Him that you believe in what He has done. I would urge you this morning to call out like the tax collector of Luke 18 who he, he got down before God. The Pharisee beside him was really proud of himself. I do everything right and I don't do everything wrong like this guy. And the tax collector, he, he's there at the altar and he says, he says, God, be merciful. God, show your mercy on me, a sinner. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, that's, that's what you got to do. This That's why this church exists, is to point people to the message of Christ i know that many of you here you 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 know Christ. some of you shared with me yesterday how how you come to know him i encourage you to remember this our hearts are prone to wonder it doesn't matter if you are the leader in this church or if you you come here every now and then and you you have trouble making it to service, you, you got other things, you, you work or whatever. Whether, whether you're the most dedicated or maybe this is the first time you've ever been here. And this is probably strange to you because I'm talking to all these people like I don't know them and that's correct. <laughs> From greatest to least, our hearts are prone to wonder. But this morning, God has promised us that he does not leave us. He does not forsake us. He will not leave us where we are at. And wouldn't it be a great thing this morning to leave this place, to go to your Sunday school classes and be able to share, listen, I have turned my heart from idolatry. I, I am a follower of Christ, but, but my heart is prone to wonder, and I want to I turn back to Him. I want to give Him first place in my life. I want to trust in Him to meet the needs that I have. That's what God is calling us to. Not from me, but from His Word. And if you read from this point and you keep reading on, you're going to find time after time where God causes people to turn from their idols, where God causes people to turn back to Him. Wouldn't it be great this morning if our hearts were turned, if they were turned from ourselves and our idols and we turn them to Christ? Imagine what God will do with this church when we worship Him when we worship Him and we worship Him only. When each and every one of us turn our hearts to Him every day. He's calling us to turn. Maybe we've turned from our sin, but let's make sure we've turned from our idols. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, God, we... God, we are grateful that we have had the opportunity to worship. God, you are good to us, even though we are so undeserving. God, we... God, you give us, Lord, what we do not deserve and you do not place upon us, God, what we have justly earned. You do not place Your punishment or wrath upon us, but You give us Your love and the love of Your Son and His protection and His grace and His forgiveness. And God, salvation through His death and resurrection. And God, we, Lord, we want to be thankful. God, You know our hearts. You have made us. And You know that our hearts are prone to wonder. And so, my prayer is that during this time, God, that we would... God, we would put aside those things in our life that we worship. That we would realize that they are no God. They're not real. They offer nothing they cannot save. And that God, we would place our trust in you. God, there are those here this morning who don't know you. They've never had a relationship with you. They've never placed their faith and trust in you. And God, I pray that you are speaking to them even now. God, you are impressing upon their heart that, God, they need you. Lord, we thank you that we can come and gather together and praise your name. And, Lord, I pray that you work through this time. As I pray in Christ's name, amen. As as we sing the song this morning, There is never any shame in recommitting ourselves to put him first. To to have our hearts in Christ alone. It's what God calls us to do daily. To die to ourselves, to pick up our cross, and follow him. And so as God speaks to you this morning, listen. We stand with you. We're going to change the song. Uh, Aaron, if you'll cue up in Christ alone, please.